This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, use of alcohol, and abusive cultural values, including financial coercion and manipulation by authority figures. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 277. Greetings, listeners! Welcome to season 7 of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you. Each week, I bring you a piece of my writing, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what I've been working on at the writing desk. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 18 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In our last episode, Ava Salindi took the transformed Danny out for a night on the town. Ava gave Danny a lot of advice about being a woman most of it colored by her own conservative ideas about gender identity and gender essentialism. As an androgyne with a pretty strong divide between their masculine and feminine personas, Evan and Ava think about the categories of male and female as being extremely clear-cut. Ava is convinced that Danny's transformed body will tell him what to do, as long as he doesn't fight against his nature. Ava had Danny practice getting in touch with his feminine instincts on the dance floor, dancing sexy for her. It worked. Both of them got pretty worked up in the process, as the curse's magic enhanced their arousal. Danny nearly had sex with Ava right there on the dance floor, which would have been a problem on several levels. For one thing, most telepaths can't have sex without entering a gestalt with their partner, Since Ava has no telepathic talent of her own, she wouldn't have been able to untangle herself from Danny's mind afterwards, and both of them would have been stuck in each other's heads forever. After this near miss, Danny went to the bar for some water to help clear their heads. There, she met Jared Tamlin, a latent telepath who had caught their attention earlier with some stunning moves on the dance floor. Danny struck up a conversation with him and introduced himself as Danny Shirabi using the name Ava had given to his female alter ego. He didn't even have to think twice about it. Meanwhile, Daniel's friends in the summer cell have heard nothing from the Hive Elders for several weeks. They know that they are going to face consequences for their failure to intercept the Vampire Syndicate's package, but exactly what those consequences will be, they do not dare to guess. Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. 
Chapter 18. Now that was one hell of an evening. Danny raised his glass in agreement, settling back on the couch with a contented sigh. They had stayed at Parallax until just after one in the morning, then hired a taxi for the ride home. Eva would take the subway downtown tomorrow morning to pick up her skimmer, when the sun was up and they were both a good deal more sober than they were at the moment. Danny had invited her in for a nightcap, not that either of them needed it. So, Eva tipped her head on its side and looked over at Danny with mischief in her eyes. Who's that boy I saw you dancing with? Danny blushed and looked away, but he couldn't keep from smiling. His name is Jared. He seemed like a nice guy, and he was all by himself. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he the same one tearing up the dance floor earlier? Danny nodded. Doesn't sound like much of a wallflower to me. You'd be surprised, Danny said. Anyway, he's a low-powered teep like me, so we had something in common. Eva rolled over on the couch until she was lying on her stomach with her feet in the air. She managed it without spilling her drink, which was a pretty good trick given her current state. Did you tell him you're TG? Not yet, Danny admitted. I'm already nervous enough about the idea of being a girl and dating guys. I didn't need anything else to make it more awkward. But you like him? Danny made a non-committal sound and gestured vaguely with his free hand. Hells, I don't know. I felt something, but for all I know, it was just overflow from our little makeout session on the dance floor. He chuckled ruefully. Your potion might have made me a woman, but it sure didn't make me a straight woman. Most androgynes still keep their attraction to whatever sex they liked before, Eva said. The other just gets added over the top. It's nothing to worry about. Who's worried? I'd be more scared if I'd suddenly stopped liking women. They both laughed at that, and the alcohol probably made it seem funnier than it actually was. Eva put down her drink and crawled down the length of the couch to Danny. She turned over and put her head in Danny's lap. Danny gave her a wry look. Comfy? he asked. Mm-hmm, Eva said, closing her eyes. So, you're gonna give it a try? Danny took a deep breath and set down his own glass, which was empty anyway. Yeah, I'm not going to know whether I can go through with this unless I actually give it a chance. So, yes, if he calls, I'll give it a try. He snorted, assuming he doesn't run away when I tell him I'm a TG. Mm, important point, Ava agreed, turning to rest her cheek against Danny's abs. And, of course, assuming that he calls before it wears off. Hmm. Ava seemed to be drifting off to sleep. Danny briefly considered inviting her to share his bed tonight, then wrote that off as a very bad idea. Ava? Hmm? How long do I have before I change back, anyway? I don't want to be out on a date and suddenly change back while I'm still in a dress. Or panties, he added silently. Ava opened her eyes halfway and shrugged. I don't know. Artex said it depends on how close you are to the Citadel, how often you change back and forth, a bunch of other things. She closed her eyes again and nestled up against Danny's navel. 
You've got somewhere between two and three weeks. Danny leapt out of his seat and spun around to face her. Eva landed face first on the couch cushions. Ow, she said. Two or three weeks? Ow, Ava said again. Never mind, ow. I'm going to be stuck like this for two weeks? Ava turned over and gave him a cross expression. What did you think? That you were going to learn all there was to know about being a woman in a bloody weekend? I find that vaguely insulting. Eva, I have a job. What am I supposed to tell my boss, my co-workers? Hells, what am I supposed to tell Nate and Kevin? The truth? Ava suggested. Danny hung his head and sighed in exasperation. Look, I don't know what you're so upset about, she said reasonably. This will give you a chance to really get into being a woman, to see how it works on a daily basis. And you can change back if you really need to, you know. Where do you think Evan comes from? Danny blushed. He'd gotten so caught up in how different it all felt that he'd forgotten that he could switch back whenever he wanted. How long can I change back for? Twelve hours. You can push it longer than that, but you won't like the side effects. She paused, frowning slightly. Actually, you will like the side effects rather a lot, but you'll hate them afterwards. That whole elevated libido thing. Bit of a double-edged sword. He'd already noticed that much. Twelve hours. Got it. He was already thinking about how he would budget his time. He could conceivably hide it from his co-workers or his flatmates, but not both. Brilliant, Ava said, yawning. Can I just crash here, then? I'll be out of your hair first thing in the morning, I promise. Danny looked up at the clock and sighed. No, come on. You can have my bed and I'll take the couch. He helped Ava get up, and they stumbled toward Danny's room. You're a real gentleman, Danny Shrabi. I know, Danny said, rolling his eyes. I'm trying to quit. Saturday, June 1st I must confess, Brian Summers, that I am somewhat disappointed. Yeah, said Sasha, under her breath. There seems to be a lot of that going around these days. The elder ignored her, fixing calm and implacable gray eyes toward her cell husband. He sat in a chair with his back to the kitchen table, while the elder stood over him with a perfect stillness that was deeply unnerving. The older telepath might as well have been made of stone. Sasha sat on the couch, with Fiona and Rebecca on either side of her, watching from a distance with their hands interlinked. They did not form a complete gestalt, but Fiona's self-control filtered down through the bond created by their physical contact. Sasha took what she needed and passed the rest on to Rebecca, whose emotions always ran close to the surface. You served with distinction for five years in the Imperial Military Intelligence Directorate, the Elder said. You fought in numerous engagements and were honorably discharged with the rank of captain. Your service with the Mundanes was, by all accounts, exemplary. You will forgive me, then, if I am somewhat perplexed that you were unable to complete a similar mission when the survival of your own people is at stake. 
Brian stared fixedly at a spot on the wall, refusing either to bow his head or to challenge the elder's gaze. I believe there are two factors that need to be taken into account, Elder. Yes. Yes. First, the mission was hastily planned and executed without the proper support for an operation of this nature. You believe, then, that you are better qualified to judge what constitutes proper support than the combined wisdom of the Hive itself? Brian chewed on his lower lip for a moment, then set his jaw. Yes, Elder. My experience in covert operations is current and in-depth. The Hive has more combined years of field experience, but it seems to be... diluted by the emotional input of the inexperienced majority. I see. And the second reason? We were working under a severe deficit in operational intelligence, Brian said. The enemy seemed to have full knowledge of our capabilities. The runner who took the package from Fiona knew about her egoist powers, despite the fact that she hadn't displayed them in any great way. She had prepared spell traps that were specifically designed to negate the kinds of tactical advantages that Fiona possesses. Meanwhile, we knew nothing about the enemy's capabilities. We were expecting undead. Dell and Trace were equipped with enchanted weapons and bullets containing essence of garlic. Instead, we ended up with two dead Mundies and a rogue telekinetic. If Del Matthews and Trace Umbara had believed that they were facing undead, they would have been a great deal more thorough in killing the two mundane operatives, the Elder said. I realize you are attempting to justify your friend's actions, but the evidence does not support your theory. We must conclude that Matthews and Umbara knew that they were firing on armed mundanes. Because you instructed us to use deadly force, Brian snapped. Hells, you should be thanking Del and Trace for taking out some of the mercenary trash in this city. We have positive IDs on both of them now. Those men were killers and you know it. The elder held up a hand. You misunderstand me. We do not condemn their actions. They were the actions of soldiers in the midst of a war and as such we do not ascribe moral weight to them. Nobility in war is prized chiefly because it is so often impractical, and then it is only valued if victory comes in spite of its handicaps. We do not have the luxury of being anything but pragmatic. Brian crossed his arms. Then why are we being hung out to dry? We're some of the best operatives you have— but we've been cut off from the hive for a week now, when we should have been out there trying to recover that package. He looked up at the elder now, and his usually soft brown eyes flashed with anger. And don't even get me started on what you're doing to Josephine. How is it pragmatic to treat a soldier's widow like a child who needs to be punished? For Eli's sake, at least let us take up a collection for her and the baby." Josephine Matthews is under discipline for promoting disloyal and divisive philosophies during a time of imminent danger, the elder said. Our wish is for her and her child to be safe and healthy and protected, but we cannot expend the resources of the hive on one who is trying to undermine our entire society. It is our hope that, by allowing her to see the consequences of her choices, we will help her to return to the fold more quickly. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. 
Elder, please. If I were you, I would be more concerned about the status of my own house, the elder said. The sudden sternness in that telepathic voice silenced all argument. You say that you are among our best operatives, but that is now a matter of debate within the hive. To be sure, all of you were recommended for this mission by your former combat trainer. Colonel Victor Henkavos was quite confident in your prowess and adaptability. Your failure to live up to those expectations was a cause of great embarrassment for him, negated only by the fact that he was able to track down the rogue telekinetic so quickly after the disaster. Brian clenched his fists, visibly struggling to keep his voice even. Elder, you'll forgive me if I am doubtful that a psyop as experienced as Kano Victor would have recommended throwing us into this mission without proper support and intelligence. The timeline was fixed at the outset, the Elder said. We barely found out about the incoming package in time to mount an operation at all. Kano Victor was consulted on the best operatives to use for the mission in light of its limitations. So you knew this was a bad run before it even started? We knew it was a difficult run, but Kano Victor was optimistic about your chances. Some are now questioning whether his assessment of you was premature. The elder walked back toward the door of the apartment. No decision will be made immediately, but these events have brought your qualifications as a cell husband under review. The Hive will be watching you closely over the next several months, Brian Summers. At the end of that time, we shall determine whether your cell's contributions to the well-being of the Collective are commensurate with the amount of responsibility that has been entrusted to you. Good day. The grey-clad telepath opened the door and left without looking back. In the silence that followed, Brian turned to face his cellmates. Sasha could see the pain and bitterness in his eyes and in his heart, held back by stubborn determination. Beside her, Fiona's face was as cold and hard as stone, but her eyes flashed with viridian fire. On her other side, Rebecca clutched her hand between two sweaty palms, her whole body trembling. Sasha freed her other hand from Fiona's and clutched the crucifix around her neck. In the middle of her scared and conflicted thoughts, the prayer that came out of her consisted of only one word. Please. Brian met each of their eyes in turn. We have to find out what was in that package, he said. And that's the end of Chapter 18. Come back next time when Danny checks in with his roommate, Kevin. Jefferson Smith said, In the world of your story, your outline is like the Ten Commandments. Unfortunately, your characters are all atheists. So, let's see how many stone tablets they've broken this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of February 20th through February 26th. I wrote 3,998 words this week, over the course of 6.25 hours, 
for an average writing speed of 640 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 313 days without breaking my chain. I continued working on my Natasha prequel story. My writing slowed down this week, as I tried to feel out where this story is going, who the important characters are, and how the events of this story are going to shape Natasha as a person. I'm torn between the desire to learn more about Natasha's time in the war, and the need to keep this story tightly focused so it can do what I need it to do. I've written just shy of 6,000 words, but I think the actual story began in the last thousand or so. The rest was me figuring out how Natasha got to this point. I've made some of the earlier scenes available to my patrons at the $3 level and higher, so if you're curious, you can check them out at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.